Welcome. I'm Warren Odess Gillette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Gary Fleming on April 5th, 2022. Gary holds a bachelor's degree and master's degree in cultural anthropology, as well as a degree in law. He's been involved in international development projects in Saudi Arabia, Iran, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, Nigeria, Zimbabwe, and Australia. Gary now has a private consulting and training company specializing in federal assistance law and other areas related to assistance agreements. I started the interview by asking Gary where he grew up and what was religious life like growing up. I grew up in Union City, New Jersey, which is directly across the Hudson River from New York City. Union City is a small but densely populated city. My parents were first-generation Americans. My mother's side of the family was Italian, and they came from the Campania region of southern Italy. My father's family was from the Connacht province of Western Ireland by way of Northumbria. My grandfather had emigrated from Ireland to Northumbria to work in the mines. I lived and grew up in a three-generation Italian household. Although everyone in the household was Catholic, my father was the only one to attend religious services on a regular basis. He attended Mass every Sunday, every first Saturday, and every Holy Day. And my grandmother, my Italian grandmother, did attend funerals, even of people that she did not know, because she had this belief uh, that people should not be alone when they die. And there were some people that did not have families to mourn them, so she would always attend. She also regularly entertained the Italian priests from St. Anthony's Parish. They came by frequently several times a week, as a matter of fact, to have lunch with her. She was a fantastic cook. Mm. My great uncle Connor, also uh, known as Charlie, was married to my grandmother's sister. He owned a house. He owned an Italian grocery in Delhi, and he made what was considered to be the best red and white table wines in the area. And I think the priests from St. Anthony's actually enjoyed those wines just as much as they enjoyed my grandmother's cooking. Mm. My grandmother entertained the world every Sunday. We had a traditional Italian Sunday meal. And that lasted from about 1 o'clock in the afternoon to about 6 o'clock. She made everything from scratch except for the desserts, which we bought from an Italian bakery. Once... I started kindergarten at St. Joseph's Elementary School. That's when I was formally introduced to Catholicism. In school, we spent every morning for about an hour studying the catechism and discussing religion. From kindergarten through the eighth grade, we also were required to attend the 9 a.m. mass every Sunday. We sat with our class and with our teacher who took attendance, God forbid you were not there. 
you better be either dead in the hospital or possibly on vacation with your parents. I became an altar boy eventually. I served Mass at St. Joseph's Church, and also I frequently served the 6.30 a.m. Mass at the Blue Chapel. The Blue Chapel was a very large complex that covered 75% of a square city block, and it was directly across the street from my house. If I sat in uh, upstairs on bedroom window, I could look out at the nuns in the courtyard when they were playing softball or tennis, etc. When I was in the third grade, this is the first problem I had with Catholicism. The nun was discussing the absolute necessity of knowing Jesus. She told us that no matter how good a person you were, if you had never known Jesus, never even heard of Jesus, if you were not a Christian, of course, preferably a Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, you could never ascend to heaven. You would remain in purgatory forever. And this is the statement that over time led me to move away from Christianity. It did not set well with me at all. After I graduated, Waited from elementary school, I attended a Jesuit prep school. The prep had three academic tracks. After the first year, of course, depending on your grades, the science track, the Greek liberal arts track, and the college prep track for those who did not qualify for the previous two tracks. But when it comes to Jesuits, I greatly admire them. I don't agree with a lot of their theological positions but they are very well educated, they are sincere, they are excellent teachers, they are understanding. We did get a lot of religious instruction, but not in the form of catechism. We got it more in the form of basic theology and the writings of major Catholic authors. We also attended mass at the prep one day every week. It was a Thursday at the chapel, except for that one year, when the chapel was being renovated and we had the opportunity to attend that weekly service at the nearby Eastern Orthodox Church, which was a unique experience in many ways. The window panes showing images of Christ and Christ's mother and other important people in Christianity were not the typical white-skinned people that you see in Roman Catholic churches. They were a much darker complexion. And while in high school, I also continued to serve as an altar boy. I served Mass every Sunday at St. Joseph's, and usually on Saturdays, sometimes even on Sundays, I would serve the 6.30 a.m. Mass at the Blue Chapel. So, Gary, what was your spiritual journey that led you to the Baha'i Faith? Well, when I graduated from high school, I slowly began to distance myself from Catholicism and from organized religion in general. Even though I had doubts as early as the third grade, Catholicism was deeply ingrained in me. When I took two steps away from Catholicism, I was pulled one step back. It was a long process. As I became more familiar with uh, spiritual teachings, I flirted with 
strong belief in God, to agnosticism, to even flirting a little bit but never embracing atheism. As I learn more about religious beliefs practiced by other people and compare their belief systems, study their cultures, study the relationship between religion and government, I became increasingly skeptical. I did come to appreciate how leaders of society used religion very frequently to control the population and how religious leaders used this power as well. And this, of course, led to the never-ending struggle for power between these two groups. I reached a point where I had absolutely no fondness for organized religion, but my belief in a creator in some sort of great being strengthened. As I was searching, I stumbled upon what is known as the science of mind. The science of mind is a spiritual philosophy that was created by Ernest Holmes. His first publication was in 1926, and he described science of mind as not something that was a special revelation of any individual. Science of mind was rather the culmination of all revelations, according to Holmes. It was the realization that good, with a capital G, is universal, that as much good as any individual is able to incorporate in his life is his to use. That resonated with me. I also at this time began to look at Islam. As far as I knew at the time, Islam was the newest world religion. When I had looked at world religions, I observed that they were revealed sequentially. So therefore, for me to look at the most recent revelation made sense. I began to coach soccer. My son was on my soccer team. One of the players that signed up for my team was a Persian-American. And his parents would drop him off and pick him up after practice every day. And of course, also attend his games. We began to talk regularly. Turns out they were Baha'is. And one day they invited me to come to their home that following Friday to attend a fireside. Now, a fireside is an informal discussion about religious principles. It's not only always about the Baha'i faith. You, since Baha'is embrace all religion, we talk about Islam and Christianity, Buddhism. We talk about regional religions as well. And it's an informal gathering that once I attended it, I was immediately attracted to the Baha'i faith. The basic principles of the faith, the basic principles of the oneness of humanity, the elimination of all prejudice, the equality of men and women, the harmony of science and religion, the independent investigation of truth, and the concept of progressive revelation were ideas that hit home with me. Now, progressive revelation simply tells us 
that there is one basic religion that is revealed sequentially by God through various manifestations, or as non-Baha'is might refer to them as prophets. And that with each revelation, God reveals through his manifestation enough information that would be understandable at that time of history by the population in which the religion was revealed. So it's like progressing from the first grade to the second grade to high school to college, etc. So you were attracted to the Baha'i faith, and was it soon after that you became an adherent of the Baha'i faith? Yes, because the more I studied, the stronger the attraction. I attended these firesides every Friday, and I became a Baha'i in June. I declared in June of 1993, I think it was basically about a year. What was your family's reaction to you becoming a Baha'i? Well, my mother, who was the only one alive at the time, in addition to her sister, my mother was not very religious, even though she had been born and raised a Catholic. She just thought it was a blip on the screen, something I would get over, you know, in time and move on to something else. She wasn't a proponent of my being a Baha'i. She didn't fight against it, but she did not really support it either. At what point did you study cultural anthropology? Well, I actually started studying it in undergrad school. I had always been fascinated by history. I was fascinated by cultures throughout the world. I was captivated by the differences and as well as the similarities among cultures and people. I found the world actually mesmerizing. So I enrolled in an introductory course in anthropology. That's when I met my favorite teacher in the entire world, mm-hmm. Professor Pat Gallagher. He actually brought anthropology to life. He taught me to appreciate that cultures are living entities. They grow, they change, they die. Cultures came into contact. They evolved. Acculturation is the exchange of knowledge, beliefs, behaviors, fashion styles, technology. It's the road for change, either for good or for ill. When I was studying cultural anthropology, I studied the indigenous societies of the Americas and sub-Saharan Africa. I studied indigenous religions. I learned how in regional as well as world religions, government and religion frequently used one another to instill compliance and sometimes fear, which is one of the things I love about the Baha'i faith, because there's no clergy that's looking for power. The Baha'i faith has no clergy. We are each responsible for the independent investigation of the truth. Yes, we have governing bodies like the United States Spiritual Assembly, which is a governing body, and the world governing body, the Universal House of Justice. But we are responsible for our own development. We are responsible for searching for the truth always. Therefore, because there's no clergy, there is no drive to seek power. Gary, I understand that 
you were involved in international development projects in Saudi Arabia, Iran, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, Nigeria, Zimbabwe, and Australia. What inspired you to do this kind of work? Well, a couple of things. Number one, anthropology inspired me to get into international work. So inspired by the desire to do whatever I could to help improve the quality of life in the world. I have a strong belief in the quality. I have a deep-seated belief in the elimination of poverty and prejudice, which are two very basic principles of the Baha'i faith. I find that international development projects are a pathway to that goal. Can you describe the kinds of projects you worked on? Yes, they were complex projects with many different activities within each. For the most part, they were related to agriculture, livestock, and water. Governments like Saudi Arabia, Nigeria, Australia and Iran paid us for our expertise, while projects in other countries like Syria, Jordan, Egypt, and Zimbabwe were paid for with U.S. dollars. I was the head of the division that was concerned with the Middle East and Africa, although subsequently we added Asia to my portfolio and initiated a major project with the People's Republic of China. I basically traveled back and forth between the United States and these countries. The project with Iran was short-lived due to the revolution. The project with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia was the longest and the most varied. I worked closely with Dr. Mohammad Zadi, who was the Deputy Minister of Agriculture and Water in the Kingdom. We formed a very close bond and a good working relationship. He actually was a Palestinian, not a Saudi. I'm convinced that he actually would have been the Minister of Agriculture had he been a Saudi, but it was common then that only a Saudi could achieve the highest level. It was great to work with. One of the major projects that we were involved with was a project to establish and to staff an agricultural and water research lab and to train young Saudi scientists to carry out research. In order to do that, we brought in Arabic-speaking scientists and faculty from the American University at Beirut. They were to staff the labs and train the Saudis. Now, in addition to these regular projects, we had a lot of ad hoc projects. One weekend when I was back in Maryland, I received a telephone call about 3 a.m. on a Sunday morning. The call was from Dr. Saadi. After a brief chat, he mentioned a new project. Like all wealthy Saudis, the king had a stable of racing camels. The king was interested in improving the quality of his camels. So they asked me to search for an expert. As it turns out, there were only two experts in the world at that time. The first individual that I had selected was turned down by the king. The reason that he was turned down is because he wanted a personal audience with the king, and that was not happening. Now, because we 
were using Saudi money and not U.S. money. We were not bound by the rules governing the use of U.S. funds, such as Buy America and Fly America. And as a result of that, we flew Saudi Airlines between Europe and the kingdom. At the time, I can't speak for it today, but at the time, it was exceptionally well run. The Saudis had contracted with an American of Mideastern descent to run the airline. He was also the owner of Mideast Airlines, and he was the person with whom I worked directly in negotiating the contract with the American University of Beirut. By the way, his daughter subsequently married the King of Jordan and <laughs> became the Queen. Okay. Oh, okay. So you were able to find a camel expert for the King? <laughs> yes. Yes. Actually found him in Egypt. Gary, you got your law degree. Why did you do that? Why, what inspired you to get a law degree? Well, going back to my time when I studied at the prep, I studied philosophy and logic, among other things, of course. The law is a field of knowledge based on logic. From a set of facts, you develop an argument and as the new facts are added, you may have to adjust your thinking. It provides a framework allowing one to analyze a situation, to develop an approach to a situation. I thought of law as a body of knowledge that could help me think, help me arrive at reasonable conclusions. I thought of it as a body of knowledge that would lend itself to any endeavor, a body of knowledge that would allow me to work more effectively in almost any field. And you are looking to expand your field of view of what you wanted to do for a career beyond the development work you were doing? Yes, I was going to get out of development work simply because there was a lot of travel involved. For example, I left Iran two weeks before they took over the embassy. Mm. That was my last trip to Iran. And there were some other situations in some other countries that were a little bit dicey. My daughter wanted me. She was very young at the time. She wanted me to stop doing that. She was afraid that something would happen to me. So I was looking to get out of that kind of work. And so after you got your law degree, what kind of work did you do? Well, after I got my degree, I actually never practiced law in the traditional sense. I worked with a labor union in negotiating the contract. Initially, I used my knowledge of the law in uh, working out contracts as part of a number of different international development projects. When I was negotiating the contract with the American University at Beirut, my law degree came in very handy. Now, after that, I moved on from international development projects, and I became involved in federal assistance agreements, basically known as grants, cooperative agreements, and there are other types of assistance instruments as well. This is an area that I spent the greater part of my federal career. 
Assistance agreements are essentially contractual agreements. The purpose of an assistance agreement is to transfer money or property to stimulate the public interest. They are very different from procurement contracts in a number of different ways. They utilize different types of funding that are involved, have unique rules. There are other significant regulatory and statutory differences between assistance agreements and procurement contracts. Unfortunately, these instruments, they're frequently misunderstood, unfortunately, by many attorneys. Many attorneys view them as another form of procurement contract, and this can and has led to many difficulties for the parties that are involved. It's important to understand a lot about them legally. Assistance agreements permeate so much of our lives. They are used to fund Medicaid, child welfare programs, research, education, construction, disaster relief, clean water and clean air programs, just to name a few. Now you have your own consultancy company. What services do you provide under that company? Well, it basically relates to my experience in the area of uh, federal financial assistance because the two major entities I worked for before I retired, I worked for the National Institute on Neurological Disorders and Stroke. I finished my federal career with the National Institute on Drug Abuse as their chief grants management officer. My company, Gary Fleming and Associates, is an extension of my work in this field. I provide formal classroom training. 100% of that is virtual since March of 2020. Mm. And I provide that training under a contract with Management Concepts Incorporated which is a training and publishing firm in Virginia. I teach 16 different courses. I'm also a subject matter expert for writing and revising texts. And in addition to the basic core courses, such as introduction to federal grants, the uniform administrative requirements, the cost principles, I also teach electives. Electives such as federal assistance law, appropriations law, detecting and preventing fraud. In addition to that, I have a number of clients that I work with regarding all aspects of their involvement when it comes to assistance projects. I help them to get a better understanding of the applicable laws and regulations, the Constitution as it applies to these projects, the terms and conditions that make up the awards, I work with them in developing and negotiating indirect cost rates, in developing and writing policies and procedures that respect federal requirements, and I help them in developing internal controls. I also work with law firms as a consultant on assistance agreements. And where can people find you if, if they want to take advantage of your services? I can be reached by email at gary.flemingassociates at gmail.com. And finally, Gary, 
how has the Baha'i faith guided you in your work, especially in the latter part with your work in the area of federal assistance law? How has the Baha'i faith guided you in your work there? Well, the Baha'i faith has guided me not only in my work, but in all facets of my life. I try to live my life according to the spiritual teaching of the faith, concepts such as justice and love. I try to follow the basic principles of the Baha'i faith, that there is only one God, that mankind is one human family, that all religions, the foundations of all religions are one, that everyone has the responsibility to investigate the truth for themselves. I also believe that there is essential harmony between true religion and true science. I strongly believe in the equality of men and women and the end to all prejudice, universal education. I believe that there are spiritual solutions to economic problems and we must work toward universal peace. I also believe that all work performed in the spirit of service is a form of worship. And I approach my work as a form of service to God. The principles of the faith enforce my natural inclination to treat everyone equally, regardless of race, gender, or religion. The faith teaches me to practice consultation. Consultation is something that is proposed by the Baha'i faith. It teaches us when we are discussing a concept. If I were to throw out an idea, I would divorce myself from that idea. It would sit there by itself, and I and others would look at it, and I would not be anchored to it. And in that way, we can study the good and bad aspects of any idea. And I use that in my work all of the time. The faith teaches us to respect other people's points of view and teaches us to provide constructive feedback, not criticism. So what I do is to suggest possible best practices. I encourage people to research questions. I also remind them that they are part of a an environment in which they work and that they need to respect others they deal with because sometimes it comes up that there are some issues, but I encourage them to exhibit mutual respect. I'm a human being though, just like everybody else. And this is not always easy to do. It's not always easy to bite your tongue, to give the best kind of answer based on the principles of the Baha'i faith understanding. <laughs> a prayer can be extremely helpful in helping me bite my tongue and not say something I am tempted to say. Well, Gary, I want to thank you so much for telling your story and telling us about your work. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. I enjoyed being in this conversation with you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Gary Fleming cultural anthropologist who traveled the world helping with development projects, and a lawyer who helps organizations with assistance agreements. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel 
a Baha'i Perspective. You can also find the podcast on Spotify and iTunes. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org, or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
she votes for change But nothing grows from conflict Except the things we hate about ourselves No, they can't pass a law to end indifference No human rights can break us from our shell Cause true freedom is in submission to his commandments And say, who needs them? But we're all wishing for something more mysterious than them and us His lips have disappeared from acting serious And watching all his numbers rise and fall he walks on by me singing in the subway And he plugs his ears, won't listen to me calling out that True freedom is in submission to his commandments We say, who needs them? But we're all wishing for something more remarkable than material About the door to your apartment But how did you think that you'd keep you safe from anything? True freedom is in submission to his commandments And you say, who needs them? But we're out wishing for something more mysterious Than them and us True freedom is in submission to his commandments And you say, who needs them? But we're out wishing for something more remarkable Than material True freedom is in submission to his commandments And you say, who needs them? But we're out wishing for something more fulfilling
drive that you at and stay by. They made me beautiful wheels. Your actions day by day may be beautiful prayers. Turn towards God and seek always to do that which is right and noble. And rich the poor. Raise the fallen. Comfort the sorrowful, bring healing to the sick, reassure the fearful, rescue the oppressed, bring hope to the hopeless, shelter the destitute. Strive that your actions day by day may be. Beautiful prayers. Turn towards God and seek always to do that which is right and noble. Enrich the poor. Raise the fallen. Comfort the sorrowful. Bring healing to the sick, reassure the fearful, rescue the oppressed, bring hope to the hopeless, shelter the destitute. Strive that your actions day by day may be beautiful prayers. And seek always to do that which is right and noble.
So. Oh. 